We're in uh, Colossians these days, and we're hovering uh, right now on a sort of a series on discerning the will of God, how to discern the will of God. And we're kind of focusing on verse 9 of Colossians chapter 1. We're not in a particular hurry, are we? And so it says this in verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. We're looking at that phrase, fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and the understanding that the Spirit gives. How do we know the will of God? How do we discern the will of God? Pray with me here for a moment. Father, this message tonight just feels huge on my heart. Um, and I just pray that what's on the inside would come on the outside and that you'd anoint it and use it, God, to build your kingdom and to even now be fulfilling Paul's prayer in our life, that we'd be a people who are filled, filled with the knowledge of your will, that it permeates our being and that it transforms us. Holy Spirit, help us to attend to this text at hand and to the topic and to be, have an open heart and an open mind and to receive it and to be changed. Change us, Lord. Heal us, Lord. Lord, I pray tonight people would be set free. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Last week, just by way of review, we saw that God's, God's will is not first and foremost about what we're to do. He has a will for what we're to do, but His, his primary will is not about, about the particular things that we do. It's rather about who we are. His primary will is that He wants to commune with us. He wants to have, as Paul said in Ephesians 5, a one-flesh sort of relationship with us. We looked at last week at that word, communion. It comes from the Latin cum, which means together with, alongside of, and then union. And so it's a union that's made of two. You keep your distinctness, and yet you're united. Commune. God wants, his highest priority is to commune with us. To, to as he said, as Jesus said in, in John 15, and we looked at it last week, to abide in us as we abide in him. And that word meno in Greek, abide, means to take a permanent residence. He doesn't want to be a God, a, a consultant God, a God who's kind of on contract, a God who we call up once in a while. Uh, no, he wants to be a God who lives in us even as we live in him. Uh, he wants our lives to interpenetrate, our souls to touch, his heart to be our heart, his vision to be our vision. His highest will is to commune with us. And so what we saw last week is that the unique communication, that is the kingdom of God. And God can talk in a lot of different ways, but the kind of communication that's central to the kingdom of God is a communication that arises out of communion. We called it last week communion communionicate. It's, it's a communication that comes out of abiding with another, dwelling with another. And it often is a kind of communication that's deeper than words where you just know, you, you sense, you discern the heart of another. Uh, tonight I want to entitle this message, Stick and String. And I, it's because it has to do with a secret that I have, up until 15 years ago, never told anyone until I told my wife. Uh, and again, it, is, it concerns a stick and a string. It's only been the last couple of years that I've co- told even my closest friends stick in a string. And I want to start by looking at this passage that just gripped me the last couple of weeks. I got it reading Dallas Willard's wonderful book, Hearing God. And he just drew attention to this verse. I'd never really noticed it before. 
And it's just really taken on such a meaning to me in the last couple of weeks. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27. The author says, The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. The spirit of man, the spirit of a person, is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. The word spirit there, nishmat, is the, the breath that God breathed into Adam. It's what made him a living human being. It's, it's the essence of our, our, our being made in the image of God. It's our life force. The spirit of a person, the innermost part of a person. And the author here says that that spirit is the lamp of the Lord. It doesn't say that it's like the lamp of the Lord. It says the spirit is the lamp of the Lord. The passage doesn't say that God is the lamp that searches the spirit. That's what the NIV puts, it has, but I have no idea how they got that. They insert a verb there that's not there. The, the Hebrew says the spirit of a person is the lamp that uh, the Lord uses to search our innermost being. That, that phrase there, cheder, is has a connotation of inner chambers or inner corridors. And so the picture that this incredible proverb gives us is the Lord comes and he takes our innermost being, our heart, our spirit, that which makes us human in his image, he takes that and he illuminates it, and then it's as though he walks around the inner corridors of our life, our mind, our heart, to shed light on, on what is there. Our innermost part is the light that sheds light on everything else. Here's a framework that I think may help us kind of understand what God is up to here. Uh, Hebrews 4 tells us that the Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing or distinguishing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts or discriminates between the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So Here in this passage, we see that we're comprised of body, soul, and spirit. And the author is suggesting in the parallelism that he's giving here that the soul is to joints what the, the spirit is to m- marrow. Joints are what hold the bones together. It's the togetherness of bones. Marrow is what makes a bone a bone. It's the essence of a bone. And so here we find that our soul, the word there is, is suke. We get the word psyche from it, our mind. It, it's our experienced togetherness. It's uh, where, where all the different facets of our being come together and it's a, our experienced unity. I, I'm Greg Boyd, a singular person, but I have all these different parts to me. I, I anticipate the future. I remember the past. I have these different aspirations and whatnot. But they're all, they all come together as an experienced self. That's my soul, my mind, my personality. But there's something deeper than our conscious thoughts and our conscious experience, than our mind. It is our spirit. It is our inner essence. It's what makes us human. It is deeper than conscious thoughts. It's deeper than words. In God's original design, this will be reviewed for some of you. It will be totally new for others. But in God's original design, he wanted to define us, as I've said before, top down and the inside out. In his design, this is how it was originally tended to be. God would communicate to our innermost being who we are, what our value is, what our worth is. He would define us to the core of our being. From the start, God's goal was then for us in our volitional center to now tell our minds, our brains, what to think, what is true. As we're submitted to the Lord, now we tell our brains what to think. And our brains then tell our bodies how to act. Our bodies then impact the world. And this is how God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven through us. 
to our innermost being, then we have authority over our mind, over our bodies, and then impact the world for the kingdom of God. He's always wanted from the beginning for us to be co-rulers with him, and this is how it was supposed to operate. Now with the rebellion, with the fall, all of this gets reversed. And so now we're defined from the bottom up and the outside in. What the fall is all about, read about it in Genesis 3, is that we shut God out. We want to define ourselves. We want to give ourselves an identity. And because nature abhors a vacuum, if we're not getting our life from, from, from God, we've got to get it from other sources. And so what happens now is Satan becomes, the Bible says this, he's the god of this age and the principality and power of the, the air. He has significant influence on the physical environment. And this physical environment now impacts our bodies. Words are said, deeds are done that impact our bodies that then make their way into our brain and our brain draws conclusions about who we are and, and about the world. We're defined from the outside in and from the bottom up. Every experience you've ever had gets recorded in your brain. Uh, and, and it becomes part of your identity. So your dad tells you you're worthless and he treats you like you're worthless. Words and deeds that come into your brain from your physical environment through your body, now they go into your brain and if that continues, you draw the conclusion, a spirit conclusion, an essence conclusion, who you are in the core of your being. And the conclusion is that I am worthless. Defined from the bottom up and the outside in. When we come into the kingdom, we enter into this thing called salvation, which is just about participating in the life of God and the wholeness of God. Our spirit, our innermost being, is once again submitted to the Father, to our Creator. Uh, That's what it is to have Him as King. The, The core intention of our heart is to say yes to Him. And so when we come into the kingdom, we are made new creatures in Christ Jesus. He gives us new marrow, if you will. We have Jesus' DNA running through us. He gives us his spirit. He says we are holy and blameless and spotless and radiant and the bride of Christ and destined for glory. All that is true. It's what's true to the core of our being. We have a new marrow inside of us. But when we come into the kingdom and participate in this thing called salvation, it doesn't automatically, as we all know, it doesn't automatically, automatically make our minds whole. And restore our entire personalities. Our soul, to a large degree at least, continues to operate on the autopilot that it got from the world. The pattern of this world. The the false self that we inherited from this world. And so when we come into the kingdom, we're defined from the top down up to the point of our spirit, our essence. But we continue to be, to some degree at least, defined from the outside in and the bottom up to the point of our soul. And this is why the first act of discipleship in the kingdom, the first plot of land we need to take authority over, is our brain. Where we once again recover that kind. The first step of co-rulership is to take responsibility for what goes on between our ears. Uh, For our spirit to tell our minds what to think. Our spirit to tell our minds what is true as we're submitted to the Lord who defines us. And so it is our job, as the Bible tells us over and over again, to take thoughts captive to Jesus Christ. And to, it tells us what to think. In Philippians 4, whatever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are good, think on those things. We have the power to, to guide our think. And we do it in the core of our being. This is where the Word of God is so important. Why it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can distinguish between soul and spirit. What is true in spirit and what may, where our souls may be screwed up. As the Word of God comes and it tells us who we are, it tells us how, how our God defines us. 
It helps us distinguish between the heart and the thoughts uh, in our being. The heart intentions where we at the core of our being want to be a kingdom person. But those thoughts that are, and those, and that the aspects of our personality that are still in bondage to the lies that we've inherited from the world. world. And so we, we take the word of God and we internalize it. And that becomes, we, we, will, we, we volitionally will that to be our think. The core of our being is we say, that is what is true about me. And that's how we can divide what dad says about us and what God says about us. Even though maybe what dad says about us feels so true, it feels so real because we've always thought that way. Well, God has a very different opinion. And we are to, at the core of our being, take what God says to be true and now live in that and think that and begin to experience that. As our mind submits to our spirit, we start to behave in more kingdom ways. We're getting that original alignment back. And as our behavior comes in line with the kingdom, we start to impact the world for the kingdom. And now God's will is being done, once again, on earth as it is in heaven, through us. That's what's going on in the kingdom. But it's a little deeper than that. It's not just that the Lord defines our spirit. He doesn't just define our spirit, speak a word into our spirit. Uh, He doesn't just define our inner essence when we submit to him. The Bible tells us, and we touched on this last week, he unites himself with us. He unites himself with us. He communes with us. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. There is this one flesh relationship that we have with God, this union, this interpenetration. He comes and he abides in us when we submit to him. And now that brings us back to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27. That verse tells us that God uses our spirit, our innermost essence, when we're submitted to him and he's united with us. He now uses our spirit, our innermost essence, as a lamp to search out the inner corridors of our soul, of our mind, the way we think, the way we experience ourselves, the way we experience everything. He's using the deepest part of us to explore other hidden parts of us. He walks with the part of us that is healed, spirit, the part of us that has been restored to unveil the secret parts that are hidden and to bring good news to those hidden parts. God God and us together, you united with God, you are searching out the secret things of the soul. God and you together are revealing things that are hidden, bringing light to darkness. And you and God together, united together, as you commune, there's this communication, this truth that gets unveiled. Communionicate, this, this truth that comes out as you commune with God. And the wounds are healed and darkness is made light. And the goal of all of this, the primary goal is Colossians 1.9. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will which is simply to have all lies rooted out, all darkness rooted out, to have every dark corridor in our soul, our mind, our suke, our personality, to have every dark corridor invaded with light, the light of his healing love. And he uses our own spirit to do that. This is what we were talking about last week when we said God's first and foremost will is not about what we do, but it's about communing with us. He wants to commune with all of us, every aspect of us, Spirit, soul, and body. Spirit, he's got the minute we submit to him. And now he unites with us and says, come on, let's restore the rest. Because he wants all of us, every nook and cranny. He unites with our spirit and we together work to unite our bodies and minds with him. He wants every nook and cranny of our inner being to know and experience the truth of who we really are. To know that he's with us and he's in us and he wants to work through us. 
wants every part of us to be defined, every part of us to be, to be defined from the top down and the inside out, not the bottom up and the outside in. He wants to reveal his will to us. And his first will, his primary will, is to commune with us. And see, the revelation that arises out of our communion with him comes because he's united with our spirit, he illuminates it, and now he walks like a lantern around the corridors of our heart, corridors of our mind, to bring light to what is darkness. It's a powerful verse, God working in tandem with us to reveal his will. Here's one of the ways that it might look. And because God's uniting with our spirit, see, every one of us is unique, so it's going to look a little different for every one of us. There's no prototype for this. But here's one of the ways that it may look. It's something that God's been uh, dealing with me for some time now. Uh, I, as I've shared before uh, up here, about nine months ago was in a car accident. Uh, and I have had, in the nine months since then, pretty much chronic neck pain. It's okay if I'm looking straight ahead and not doing anything with my neck, but any kind of turning, any kind of movement, there's like this dagger that's in the side of my neck. And um, it's been pretty chronic. I've, I've been prayed over, and I have, will continue to be prayed over all the time, so I'm getting a lot of prayer covering. Um, I'm working with top specialists in the Twin Cities. I've been working with physical therapists. We're trying everything. Uh, there is some improvement, praise God, uh, and we're going to keep on working on that. But you just got to know I've covered my bases on that. But on top of, see, this is physically irritating. You have to make a choice to, like, sometimes to, to, to stay in a good mood. It's, it's, sometimes it's when, you, when that pain hits, it's like hitting the, your head on the corner of a cupboard. You know, and you just want to get mad, and you've got to make a decision to press through it. So it's irritating on a physical level. But there's something else that's been going on. And I've only recently begun to get a handle on it. This thing's been messing up with my head in some weird ways. Over time, and it seems kind of, up until recently, it was sort of intensifying. I would have sometimes trouble concentrating. I, I have feel, been feeling increasingly flat, uh, lacking motivation. There's sort of this dull kind of depression that's sort of there. Not all the time, and I actually feel most at home when I'm preaching. But, but when it comes to writing and stuff, I've just been lacking concentration. My head feels kind of scrambled, frankly. I, 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 I'm not sure about a lot of stuff. I feel like there's competing narratives in my head. I've had this intense sense of, of alienation on and off, where you just don't fit. The world seems like it's changed a little bit. And I always feel some alienation, and I think it's kind of good to have some alienation there. But since this car accident, especially the last couple of months, it's been intensified. It's been painful. My sleep's been screwed up. I've never been a good, good sleeper, but... but uh, Lately, it's been you know, three hours a night. It seems to be pretty much typical and uh, having an inability to even take naps. And sometimes when I would wake up, I would have this like heart, heart, heart racing, my, like a surge of, uh, of, of adrenaline and like this nervousness, you know, this, this kind of like anxiety attack. I don't even know what that's about. And I, I took some Ambien for a while and, and uh, that would give me seven hours sleep, but it's, it screwed me up more. I felt flatter during the day and, and more scrambled during the day. And so I finally got it. I'd rather have three hours and be less scrambled than, than to, to you know, be, be using that too much. Uh, so I, I quit it. It's, just been, it's been screwing around with my brain. I, I've learned over the years to take all my pain to the Lord. And the, it's there to teach something. And, and, and so I, I find times of reprieve and times of peace as I just get centered in, in Christ. And I frankly don't think I've ever prayed more and called out to God more uh, than I have in the last nine months, where I just, sometimes in the middle of the night, just got to find this center. And I put on some music and just get centered. But I haven't had a breakthrough. 
about what, what it's about. What, what, what is going on here? I know it's not just the pain. I'm a tough dude. I can take pain. This is more than that. There's something else going on here. And I began to see just in the last couple of weeks kind of what's going on, I, I, I think. Um, talking with friends, Paul Eddie and my small group, and processing this and spending time with God, I've really come to see that, that it's not just about the pain or primarily about the pain. It's about the meaning of the pain. There's a meaning that is here. And something about the meaning of this pain is revealing darkened corridors in my inner being that have not yet received light. And see, I, this isn't the first time something like this has happened. You, you, you know, if you've been around like the time, I, I share this stuff regularly. But I really thought I was pretty much done. Uh, pretty much healed. Integrated. And just when you think that, there's another layer. The rabbit hole goes a little deeper. Uh, here, here's the background to what has been revealed to me, especially in the last couple of weeks. It has to do with, with, and some of this I've shared little pieces of it before, but I've never brought it together like this. It has to do with things that happened to me in Catholic school in second and third grade when I was seven and eight years old. Uh, they, those are my foggiest years. I remember my teachers up to second grade, and I remember my teachers after third grade, but I, don't have, I, can't, even, I can't even get the faces of my teachers in second and third grade. And, and it's all quite foggy. I uh, had a, a severe stuttering problem uh, at this time in my life. I had uh, a lot of behavioral problems, I'm sure. You know, I've since been I diagnosed with ADHD, and I uh, had that back then, so I couldn't concentrate on anything. So I had behavioral problems. I was behind in all the subjects because I wasn't paying attention to anything. I was re- remedial everything. Plus, I had speech therapy. Plus, I was always acting out. So I, I, I really got tagged as sort of the, 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 the behavioral problem dumb kid who, who doesn't know how to talk. I landed on a strategy. We all need a strategy to survive, some way of giving ourselves worth. And one of three strategies that I can see looking back on this, one of three strategies that I had was to get life was that I just would become the bad kid. And I'd become the class clown. I, I, could, I, I would do things that other kids wouldn't do, and that would give me some kind of peer approval. So the teachers developed a strategy for disciplining me when they didn't have to always keep their eyes on me. And so what they would do is, is give the little goody two-shoe girls in the class, they would have them sit behind me with a family Bible. And they had unquestioned permission to hit me over the head with that Bible if I was ever acting out. Um, it would always happen unexpectedly. I never saw it coming, so there'd be a jolt. And often it would happen without me deserving it. They just would like to have... It was always good for a laugh. And all of a sudden you hear this whap. And, and, uh, uh, but I never saw it coming. I don't know how often that happened. I, I, I can remember a handful of times, but I, I don't know how often that, that happened. I do know that, that when they hit, sometimes it was very, very hard. Uh, there were times where the room would kind of roll back into vision, which let's, I now understand that was because my head, eyes would roll in the back of my head. It would hit me very hard. I would always have, uh, I see stars afterwards, or sometimes the peripheral vision would be dark. I'd have like the tunnel vision. Uh, sometimes there would be blurriness for a while. And I, but I would always laugh it off because I'm a class clown and it didn't mean anything. And so I'd always force a smile even if I was fighting back tears. And I always remember having neck pain. It was a constant thing. But I couldn't tell anybody. It's not like I can go home and, and tell my parents that uh, I'm being abused at school. Um, no one's going to take the word of a behavioral problem stuttering 
remedial reading kid over the word of nuns and teachers who are doing God's work. It explains why all my life I've had some stiffness in my neck. I've never had good rotation in my neck. It explains why this car wreck jacked my neck up so much. Uh, why I'm on my MRI, I've got this, this arthritis, moderate to severe arthritis throughout the neck, and moderate to severe disc shrinkage throughout my neck, and a bulge, and uh, other sorts of things. Another strategy I had going through this time was uh, we all need to feel special. And I, I, I developed a strategy where I, I would make, I tell myself I'm special because I knew a secret that no one else, no one else seemed to know, and it's a secret that we die. I, I, I was always obsessed with death. I just, I don't know how that happened, but I was just fascinated by death and thought about it a lot. Um, and I felt like I had a secret because no one else seemed to want to talk about it. Everyone else seemed to forget about it. Uh, they, they, and I had trouble communicating stuff anyways because of the stuttering. But, and so far as I tried, no one wanted to talk about this. And so I came to the conclusion at some point that people must just forget that we die. And so I would at times, after being whacked over the head with the Bible, uh, or if I would try to answer a question and I couldn't because I stuttered and the kids would laugh, I would, whenever there was that taunting of the classroom as we're sitting there all with our conformist uniforms, I, I, would, I would say to myself, you all think that I'm stupid, but I know that you're stupid because I know that we die. And so none of this matters. You don't even know that we're going to die. I do. And, and in a bizarre way, I, I felt special for having this secret. Um, I was being, being defined by the outside in, what was coming into my brain through my body in the physical environment. I was being defined by the outside in and from the bottom up. The enemy is using this to, to tell my mind conclusions that are not true. I concluded around seven or eight years old that I'm alone and that nothing matters. And I'm the only one that knows that nothing matters, which makes me feel more alone. And I remember during this period of time feeling so very alone. Having to go away to the school, I had to take a couple buses, and just being alone, going to the buses, and then at school, always feeling out of place, always feeling alienated, always feeling threatened, and that's why I was a class clown. It was one way I could fit in. It was a little niche I had. What made it, I think, much worse is that home wasn't a safe place either. I wasn't at home at home. Uh, we had, I've lived in a family with a mixed marriage that was toxic, and the kids became pawns in this toxic constantly fighting uh, warfare that was this marriage. My stepmother, looking back on it now, I think she just lived on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Maybe she even had a couple, I don't know. But um, she would sometimes snap. And when she would snap, and you never knew when she was going to snap, but when she snapped, she would bring about some, some bizarre and humiliating and very painful forms of punishment. And so as I look back on it, this kid, this little Greg, had no safe place. So the message that I was internalizing was that I'm alone in a meaningless and painfully arbitrary world. I could turn against it at any minute. As I look back on my life, given that conclusion, a lot of things make sense. I can see, I get, when I started reading, when I finally found something that was worth thinking about in 11th grade, I started reading philosophy, I immediately gravitated towards existentialism. <laughs> I can I can understand why now. It's, it, it was just wired for it. Soren Kierkegaard, man, I just had a friend in Soren Kierkegaard. So I had the strategy of being a class clown. I had a strategy of knowing a secret that we died, and therefore it's all meaningless. I had one final strategy of, of survival, and it, it was my imagination. I, I would 
retreat into this world of imagination and that was safe and that was interesting and that was fun. And I did this for a number of years. I don't know if I, I think I did this until I was 11, 12 years old, where I would just retreat. It involved a stick and a string, hence the title of this message. And uh, I, I would find any kind of stick like this. I don't know if you can see this. A Q-tip was sometimes what I had to use if I couldn't find a stick around the house or outside. I'd get a Q-tip, and then I'd find a string of some sort. Um, and uh, this is a string from a rug, and often I would have to find, I'd pull threads out of the rug. And I had to always sneak this because my stepmother was very, very against it. Uh, she thought this was abnormal, and I had a number of abnormal behaviors. I didn't know until much later that she actually was trying to get me in to see a shrink, but my, my father didn't think I needed it. But I would go into this world of imagination for hours, and I would get alone with a stick and string. These are my two best friends. And I would just play in this imaginary world. Um, and it would be like, this, would, this could be the, the, the smokestack of a train, and this would be the, the, the smoke out of the train, oh, the, the, the uh, smokestack. Or this would be the, the, the arms of the, the, the train, and this would be the wheel. You know, it would be choo-choo-choo-choo like this. Or this could be a gun, and this is the fire coming out of the gun. Or this is somebody hitting somebody, and this is the pop somehow. This would be like, like on Batman, the pop, or whatever. Or, or this would be a plane, and here's the propeller. Or this could be the wing of the plane, and this could be the wind a, a, behind it. And there's a million things, and I would run around the room just, you know, just kind of hyper while I'm playing this stuff, and I would make all sorts of noises. And, and uh, it, I, I would go for, uh, for hours, and I had to do it. I, it, was, it, was a, it was a compulsion. If I was in a situation where I couldn't get my stick and string, and there was a sense of panic, my heart would just flutter. I would just be panicky. I'd find anything, even a bobby pin or a little tiny thread to go into the bathroom alone and act like I'm going to the bathroom. But I had to just get my fix. And I would have to hide doing it, which is one of the reasons why I think it's, it, it feels kind of scary to put this out there. Uh, I, I would usually go downstairs and, and hide, because then I could, I could hear my stepmother coming down so I could stop it in time. She couldn't catch me. I had to hide my rocking my head in bed or my bouncing my head against the pillow and a number of other, other behaviors. It was coping mechanisms for a kid who was being defined from the outside in and from the bottom up. So the revelation that is starting to kind of come up, it seems, right now, is that there's something about this neck pain that's activating all of that. They say that your body remembers. Memories can be stored in your body. And there's something about this neck pain that is bringing me there. It sometimes feels like this world of, of this, this second and third grader is invading the world of the 54-year-old. He's breaking in. And I'm, I'm, I'm like feeling the conclusion that he drew in seventh, or as a seven and eight-year-old. And I, I, didn't, I couldn't name that until just the last couple of weeks to draw this connection. There's something here. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's breaking through. I just couldn't name it. I couldn't identify it. The adult me knows that I'm not alone, but there apparently is in some corridor, in some dark school in, in my brain, a kid who doesn't know that yet. And I, I, I know that death isn't the end, but there's this kid in his dark corridor in, in, my, in the recesses of my soul that, that isn't sure about that. And I know that life isn't meaningless, but there's a part of me locked in there that apparently doesn't yet know that. Still, it's still feeling the alienation of, of, of that meaninglessness. And I know as an adult, I don't need to convince anyone that I'm not dumb, but there's somebody deep in there, this little boy in there that still thinks that, that he needs to do that. No, hold, hang on to the secret of death to prove that he's not as dumb as everybody thinks he is. Down there in the quarters of my inner being, there's somebody who's stuck. 
corridors of a, of a dark school, corridors of a, of a threatening home, aspects of my being that are not yet filled with the knowledge of God's will and he desires to commune with me. So here's what's, what's going on now. Uh, as I always do, I, I just put on beautiful music uh, when I commune with God, and I ask God to search my heart. And I, I surrender my imagination over to him because I, I believe uh, that the imagination is the primary connection between the spirit and the soul. The spirit doesn't talk verbally. We can even show that neurologically. I mean, there's parts of our brain that just don't process stuff that way. But he speaks in terms of images and impressions and sensations. And so you surrender your imagination up and ask God to just to commun- as you commune with him to communicate with you. I commune with God, and out of that communion, uh, God and I together go back. And he holds my spirit like a lamp. And I just invite him to search the corridors of the heart and to look, look for this kid. We are together doing that. And he and I reveal messages that this little boy received and conclusions that the little boy believed that were not true. And then he lets the true part of me, this, the spirit, Shine on this kid. Shine light on this. What is real? And then to bring healing. He partners with the innermost part of me that is healed to bring healing to the rest of me. He's helping me take authority over all aspects of my being, including the past. God doesn't change the past, but he can change the meaning of the past. If we let him. And if we'll abide with him and commune with him. And surrender ourselves to him. And that's how we get free and that's how we get healed. What I, what I experience during these times are simply glimpses. It's like a dream sometimes. Glimpses or images um, uh, or impressions. And some of them are familiar. I remember them. I, I remember that. But others are not at all familiar. But they're all powerful. And he redeems them. Here's just a few of them. And I'll close with this. A few of the, the scenes that I'm getting. It's just one way that it can look as you commune with God and explore the corridors of your inner being with the light that you are. At one point, I see a boy in a field. It's me, little, little Greg. I'm staring at this dead rabbit. And I did that a lot. I would stare at little, dead animals. And I, I, I see this boy, and he's full of wonder, and he's full of all these questions. He's full of questions. But he's got no one to talk to about him. He's alone, and he stutters, and no one seems to be interested in that topic. And then I was just looking at this boy in this field, staring at this dead rabbit and kind of poking at it, and just full of wonder. I hear a voice, but it's a voice that's deeper than words. It's an impression. It's, it's, the, the, it's, that, it's a communicate kind of voice. And the voice is simply, he is my beloved. He is my beloved. Someone just before this car accident gave me a word, uh, met with me to just give me, felt like I had a prophetic word. And the, the essence of the word was, you are God's beloved. And I took it, and it was a nice word, and it moved me, and it touched me. And then I largely forgot about it. But in the last couple of weeks, it's been a refrain. As I, as I united with God, I've been going to look through the corridors of the inner being. Uh, this, this become kind of a theme. Uh, that word has landed. Another image is I see a boy in church, and he's staring at the statue of the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary was his imaginary friend in heaven. And it was the only friend he thought he had in heaven. And I'm asking her to save me because I, I don't want to go to the hell that I hear about every day. I'm not sure about that place, but 
I don't want to go there. And as I'm looking at this boy's longing, he's just wanting to be held in, in her arms. There's times where he would be envious of Jesus because she's held, he's held so serenely. And part of, the part of him that's longing, as I'm staring at the statue of the Virgin Mary, I had to go to Mass every morning, and I just look at her. She's so serene. And the boy's really holding out the possibility of someday being loved like that. And so you see him kneeling in the church and staring with his longing face. And I, I hear the word. It's deeper than words. He is my beloved. I see a boy at one point sitting in a second grade desk. And he's surrounded by a classroom full of taunting peers in uniform. And I, as I'm looking at him, I know that he's just been hit. But he's forcing a smile like he doesn't click here because he's, he's the clown and everything is laughed at. He's always the clown. But then in this scene, I then suddenly notice that the one behind him is not one of these girls with the family Bible. It's Jesus. And he's rubbing the knees, rubbing my neck. And, and I'm, I'm smiling past the pain, but he's wincing. He's absorbing the pain. I can see that as he's rubbing my neck. And as he's doing that, he whispers to me. He leans forward and he whispers in the boy's ear, You are my beloved. You're my beloved. Another time I see the boy holding Jesus' hand, and as they walk down this one dark, threatening hallway of, the, of, of school, and they're alone. There's no other kids around in this scene. I just see a glimpse of this. They're holding hand in hand. And one hand, Jesus got the boy hands. I'm looking at it from behind. And the other hand, he's holding like this lantern, which is, I know, the, the essence of me, this light. And it's shedding light on this dark corridor. And as they walk down this hall, all of a sudden, the... the the wall on the far side of the corridor vanishes. And now the corridor, the hallway opens up to this magnificent field. And they're heading towards this open field. It just feels so free. And the light just now sheds this dark corridor. And, and as I approach it, I re- see that there's all sorts of bunnies hopping around in this field. And the boy and Jesus walk out in the field. And I hear that word again. He is my beloved. And one final image I have is I see this boy hiding alone in the basement of his home, as he did so often. It's one place where he couldn't be caught, walked in on. He's playing with a Q-tip and a string, and he's jumping around so frantically, and, and having, he's lost in his imagination, in his imaginary world, and he's making strange noises. And it looks so bizarre as he's doing this all by himself, But as I look at this scene, all of a sudden I notice Jesus is jumping along with him. Right on the outside of the circle. Jesus is jumping along with him and he's he's waving his hands like this. Like he's creating magic with this this young boy. He's just creating magic. Like this is his his, his creativity flowing through this. He's got this look of delight on his face. His pure delight. He's rejoicing over this young boy, this little boy. And then he says something a little bit different. I hear this word. He is my stick and string. He is my beloved. You see, on one level you could say this is, this is just my imagination. This is my imagination. And it is my imagination. But see, it's my imagination that's been illuminated by the Spirit of God. His Spirit united with my Spirit, which makes my Spirit a lamp. And now he's using my Spirit as this lamp to go into these corridors, these innermost parts of my being that have not yet fully received the good news. And he's setting the captive free. And he's, 
He's, he's reframing the things that have happened in the past, and he's bringing redemption to it and healing to it. And I'm being made more whole, and now I'm being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Not just the adult Greg Boyd in the frontal lobe cortex, but the inner beings, the inner corridors of Greg Boyd are being filled with the knowledge of God's will. The light is invading the darkness. God's primary will, you guys, it's not about what we do. It's about you. It's about you. That he wants to commune with you. He wants to fill you and me with the knowledge of his, God's, uh, of his will. His will is that, he, that, that we'd be united in his perfect love. His will is to be with you and to be in you and to flow through you. His will is that you, that, that, that you be healed and you be set free and that you be made whole. His will is that you, every part of you, would know that you're, you're profoundly loved and that you've never been alone. You've thought you were alone, but you weren't alone. He's always been there. His will is to fill every corridor of your innermost being with his love and to shed light on the darkest spots, every nook and cranny, and to fill it with light and to fill it with love, to fill it with peace and to fill it with truth. And so I I encourage you to have times where you just sit in his presence and commune and just surrender your imagination to him and then let him use your spirit as a lamp to say what is real, what is there. It's a beautiful thing. I, I, the, the beauty he brings, and he brings good out of all of it. It's the most beautiful, beautiful thing in the world to see the Lord in the process of redeeming all of us, every part of us, every nook and cranny, every, every, every wound that is there, every scar. Invite him into it and watch the healing that he brings. I, I just want to leave this with, um, we're going to put on some music. I want to ask the prayer teams to come up. And, and uh, if you want to sit for a little bit and just sort of, Soak, just do what we've been talking about and just sort of let the Lord use your spirit as a lamp and, and see what comes. You're free to do that when you want to leave. Feel free to leave, but do it quietly. Uh, so could I ask the prayer team to come forward? If you would like to pray with folks about something that is there, maybe you've had something like what I've been going through where there's something that is just invading your adult life and you don't know what it is, it helps to have people to help discern that. And so Lord, we right now surrender this time to you. Thank you for being a God who floods us with light. A God who fuses your spirit with our innermost spirit to redeem us. Continue that good work that you began. Bring healing, bring light, bring love, bring truth to the darkest secret places of our hearts. We open ourselves up to you. In Jesus' name.